Pull out your Bibles if you've got one. We've got some black Bibles under the chairs. We're in Luke. We're in the Gospel of Luke in this section in the last five chapters, 19 through 24. We're calling this the last days of Jesus. So the last days of Jesus focus in on this last week of his life where Jesus comes into the city and he offers himself as the king, not only of Jerusalem, but the king of the universe. And the the big irony is that he's inaugurated as king through suffering and death and then through his great resurrection. And that's the part of the story we're in right now, the last days of Jesus. This week, we're turning the corner in the second half of chapter 22. So you can open to chapter 22. We'll be in verses 23 through 38. Chapter 22, 23 through 38. You can find it on page 881 in the Black Bibles, and we're calling it Squad Goals. Squad Goals. Squad Goals. It's a focus in on Jesus' official squad. This is his gang. This is his group. This is his team. And a British Bible scholar I was studying this passage with this week, not in person, reading his book. I'm reading this British guy's book, and he says, imagine that you're a soccer coach, and it's the most important game of a lifetime. And you are giving the big talk to your team, and you're telling your squad you're going to have to play harder than you've ever played. And you're going to have to give it your all. And it's going to be really difficult. But if you make sacrifices, it will be worth it. And we can win this game. But the most important thing is that you be unified. The most important thing is that you work in harmony together. And then immediately when you finish your speech, your team starts arguing about who's the greatest and who is most important. And the team, the squad, dissolves into disunity. He says this is much of what this passage is like. This passage is like that. It's like all right, let's go team. And then they fall apart in disunity. So let's read together. And what I want to do is I want to back up a couple of verses and we'll start in chapter 22, verse 21, to pick up a little bit of the betrayal scene we got from from last time, right? So we had the betrayal of Judas, and then now he's turning to the rest of the disciples. But let's pick up on the betrayal of Judas thing again, starting in verse 21. So Luke 22, verse 21 But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader, as one who serves. For who is the greatest, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I, Jesus says, but I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is, this is the, big, the big deal. He's like, here we go. I'm transferring authority to you. you you're my squad. You're my, you're my team. You're my guys. And yet they're dissolving into who's most important. He has to teach them once again, no, you are to serve one another in love. Uh, Let me pray that God would help us to hear this. Uh, He's got goals for us as well as goals for this original audience. And let's pray that his spirit would be with us this morning. 
God, we pray that your spirit would teach us, uh, that you would be with us in this room individually, helping us to hear who you are, how you've revealed yourself in scripture. We thank you for your revelation and pray now that it would be spiritually real and alive to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So squad goals is the big idea. Um, as I said, I saw the illustration of the soccer team this week. Also, it's, a, it's kind of a slang term. You'll see sometimes online, uh, a team of friends will see something other people do, and they think it's really cool. So they say, you know, hashtag squad goals. Like, I wish my squad could be like that squad. It's kind of the idea. And so there's an irony here because we're looking at Jesus's original team, his group of friends, his team, his squad. And what we're seeing is on the one hand, Jesus saying, you, you can do this and you're going to do this, right? Like there's a great confidence on the part of Jesus. And yet on the flip side, there's this disaster of them falling apart. And so that's really helpful for us because the Christian life is one of great humility. It's where we look back on these founders and we say, oh, they failed. We're also going to fail. And yet Jesus is unfazed by that and says, I'm going to work through you anyway. That's, that's the Savior that we have, the Savior that uses people like you and me that, that trip up and stumble, and he says, it's, it's going to be okay. We're going to do this. We can do this together. And so as we think about the squad goals that Jesus has for his guys, he's got the same goals for us. The rest of the New Testament unpacks this, kind of big ideas. And so as we move through the text, we're going to see one goal is don't be so bossy, Okay. Number one squad goal that he's given to his guys, that's the part we already read, don't be so bossy. Number two, we're going to see some specifics he gives to Peter, but it applies to the 12 and it applies to us as well, and that is endure beyond failure. Endure beyond failure. You might be like me and think, oh, I failed, game over. No, he says endure beyond failure. You will fail, endure beyond failure. And then number three, prepare to be outsiders. Prepare to be outsiders. So, don't be so bossy, endure beyond failure, and prepare to be outsiders. These are our squad goals. So number one, don't be so bossy. We see this in chapter 22, verses 23 through 27. Uh, this is a section that we already saw most of it, but I want to kind of dig in on the details a little bit. So in 23, it says they began to question which one of them it could be who was going to betray Jesus, right? So they're kind of turning on each other. He's just announced someone's going to do this terrible betrayal, and they're like, who, who could it be? In 24, they immediately then launch into a dispute. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. It's funny, not just who is the greatest, but who should be regarded, right? <laughs> which one of us should be honored? Which one of us should have the most praise, if you will? In verse 25, he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. Uh, older translations say, lord it over them, right? So the kings of the Gentiles, Gentiles is just ethne, tribes, nations, people groups. He's saying, you know what? You've seen that out there in the world. All the different groups do this kind of thing. All the different groups have leaders and kings, and they lord it over each other. It says those in authority over them are called benefactors. So they're often given fancy titles, right? Important person. Oh, good leader. Verse 26, but not so with you. Not so with you. He gives them a command. You're not to be like that. You're not to be so impressed and so obsessed with the title of boss and leader. Verse 26, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. 
These are his marching orders for us. He says it so many times in so many other places throughout Scripture. We should be childlike. We should be a servant. We should be humble. Don't be so bossy. That's what he's trying to communicate here to his official leaders. Verse 27, For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? So here, what he's saying is he's like, in the world, the way the economy normally works, who is greater, right? We're confused because we already know the end of the story before the beginning, right? So we often read servant leadership into it before he's taught them this. We're saying, in just the normal world, who's more important? The one that's kicked back, leaning on the table, or the one that's serving them? He's like, well, yeah, the one who's kicked back, that's the more important one. He says, but, look at this, the end of verse 27, but I am among you as the one who serves. I'm among you as the one who serves. He's clearly making a distinction here. Don't, don't be so bossy. In the next section, he's going to officially confer titles of leadership on them. He's going to knight them as bosses, so to speak. And he's going to talk to Peter as the leader among the leaders, right? It's not that bosses don't exist. It's not that leadership doesn't exist. He says, but the way that you lead is being a servant. Stop caring about the title. It, it doesn't matter. So the New Testament will say again and again, if you are a boss, if you are a leader of some kind, it's a stewardship and you got to use it well. And the number one thing you have to know is you got to serve people in love, sacrificially. So it's not like it's anti-leadership, right? The church, we have leaders. We have pastors, we have elders, we have Sunday school teachers. We have appointed leaders over different ministries. There's no, it's not a problem to have a leader, He's just saying, in my church, among my people, the leaders will not be bossy. The leaders not, will, will not be vying for who should be applauded as the greatest. That is not how it should be done. He says, you should consider others greater than yourself. And he gives the model of himself. But I am among you as the one who serves. Philippians 2 is one of the most beautiful hymns in the New Testament about this. It's a praise hymn about Jesus who left the perfection of heaven, entered into our world, took on human flesh, took on the form of a servant, became mortal for us, suffered for us, moved into our terrible neighborhood, took on our terrible burdens, suffered alongside us and suffered for us because of his love. He says, I'm, I'm showing you leadership. This is what leadership should look like. And then in John chapter 13, the final thing he displays to his disciples in this greater conversation. So this same section of history we're in in Luke, John gives us this detail of one of the last things he did before he was betrayed was he washed his disciples' feet. And he said, this, I'm giving you a model so, so you can physically remember this, right? They would always remember that embarrassing, weird moment when Jesus washed their feet. And he's like, this is leadership. Leadership 101, washing feet. Leadership 102, Dying on a cross. He's like, I've, I've given you what it looks like. This, this is how you should do it. Go and do likewise. Don't be so bossy, but serve one another. I have a picture of a statue at Dallas Theological Seminary. A lot of my good friends went to Dallas Seminary. It's a part of the Bible church movement. There's a big connection to Dallas Seminary. It's a great school to train men to be pastors. Um, and at the center of the campus, they have a statue of Jesus washing Peter's feet to clarify, like, okay, it's important that you... Do your Greek homework, you got to do your Hebrew homework, you got to study theology, but 
Like in the end, in the end, you're washing feet. You're serving people. And that's, that's carried on to all of us, right? This is not just something for apostles or just something for pastors or some particular kind of leadership. It's, it's something that Christians do. Christians serve one another. Um, I think it's important, before we talk about the specifics of serving a little more, I just want to say the heart of serving comes from our identity as being beloved by God. And that's really clearly seen in John 13 when Jesus washes his disciples' feet. Uh, it says something like he remembered who he was, how he came from the Father, and he's going back to the Father. And we need to remember that as well. The only way that we can serve others well, the only way that we can steward leadership and authority without being so bossy is when we remember that we are saved and loved by grace. We remember that identity of sonship and adoption and belonging to the Father. And so we see Jesus doing that in John 13. He remembers like, oh yeah, I came from the Father. I'm going back to the Father. I'm good. And then he stoops and washes feet. And so that's the mindset that we have to have as well. Philippians 2 even says it explicitly. Have the mindset of Jesus Christ, right? Think like him who was loved by the Father. And then what do we do? We serve each other. And I'd say it's just helpful to break it down into two kind of jurisdictions, two areas of service. Uh, There's just relational service, just normal. You look around, who's next to you? Chances are the person you're sitting next to, you need to serve them, right? Chances are your roommate is someone you're going to have to serve. Chances are someone you're working with is someone you need to serve. Chances are people in your family, that's someone you need to serve. That's just common sense. We sometimes say sphere of influence or circle of influence. You just, you look to the people next to you serve them. Don't think of, oh, well, but that's not the role we have. I'm, I'm the important one. They're supposed to serve me. No, serve them. That's what we do as Christians. And then we would also call you to more corporate ways of service. We'll, we'll beat this drum every week at our church. We're inviting you to partner with what Grace Bible Church is doing, just as Jesus passed on leadership to a few who passed it on to a few who passed it on to a few We're inviting you into the process of serving corporately with us as well. We think both things are important. Both things are valid. And we share the hope that we have in Jesus here with with this community and and with the world. So find a place to serve relationally. Just look around you, but also corporately at the church. Okay, second point. Second point is we are to endure beyond failure. Endure beyond failure. I said this already. We're in 28 through 34 here. I... I often think, um, yeah, failure means that's the end. I need to endure, endure, endure. And when I fail, I'm done enduring, right? That's often how we think of spiritual endurance or perseverance in our faith. I'll keep going until I fail. Oh, and then I'm done. But it's actually the opposite. Jesus is like, you're going to fail. Keep going. You're going to fail. Do you believe that? Keep going. And so that's what we see in this text, even our founders failed. Their leader, Peter, was a big failure. But it's Jesus' prayer for Peter. You'll notice this in the story. He says, I'm praying for you, Peter. You're going you're gonna to keep going. And then I want you to strengthen your brothers. Okay? So let's listen to the story. It's in verses 28 through 34. He says, You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. So in a sense, he's like, you guys have endured with me. So I'm now conferring authority on you, right? I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. 
Uh, so Old Covenant, New Covenant, we talked about that a little bit last week with the, um, the Lord's Supper passage. We are under the New Covenant. And so there's been an official transferal of covenant and leadership from God's people Israel to the church. So we want to be careful about this, right? Because some people take this so far that they would say there's no hope or no future for ethnic Israel left. And I would say, no, we don't want to go that far because the, the New Testament still says there's all these great promises and the Old Testament intimates as well. There's all these great promises in the future for Israel, we believe. And yet, as far as official administration goes, God's operating machine in the world is the church. And the authority has been transferred to the apostles through the New Covenant, the New Testament that we read. That's our authority structure. Uh, and so we've got similarity and difference, right? Old covenant to new covenant, the sameness is the moral structure, same morality, same moral law, same Ten Commandments. The living pure looks the same old and new, but there's a different administration in, in which they were a nation, so they had nation state laws that we don't have because we're a thousand nations now as Christians. There's, you know, Christians all over the world, multinational, multi-ethnic. And then the other thing that's changed is the symbolic laws, the ceremonial laws, right? The book of Hebrews says, yeah, those were all pointing forward, telegraphing the death and resurrection of Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice of Christ. So we don't keep practicing those ceremonies and those sacrifices anymore. Now we remember the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So the same, same morality, same even need for a sacrifice to be made so that we could come into the presence of a holy God, but a different administration, right? We're no longer the nation of Israel. We are now the church who celebrates the finished work of Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead, promising that he really has defeated sin and death forever. This official conferral of kingdom, keys, authority, leadership, judging these thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel, it's all happening right here. But that's not the end of the story. Look at verse 31. Simon, Simon. Who's Simon? It's Peter, right? Why does he have two names? Well, in Matthew 16, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. He's the one they've been waiting for. He's the Savior. And Jesus says, on this rock, I'll build my church. And I'm going to call you Rocky, right? Peter means Rocky. It's a totally different word than the rock he's building his church on. He's basically saying, on this enormous, unstoppable foundation stone of faith in Jesus. We're going to build my church. And then he's like, and so you don't forget this, Peter. I'm going to call you little baby Rocky, okay? And so he gives him this, this word, this name, this nickname to remind him of that. But the big thing that Peter did was confess that Jesus is the Lord and the Christ that they've been waiting for. And so here, Simon, who also has the nickname Rocky, says, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Sift you like wheat. Now, I remember my mom had a sifter for flour. Any of you ever seen one of those, a sifter? Okay, you've seen that? And it, it takes the flour and, and you sift out the, I don't know, impurities or something, right? Flour is already pretty fine and you're making it more fine. You're sifting it down. That's not actually what this is saying, okay? This is more like threshing wheat, Anybody know how it works to thresh wheat? You've got these big stalks of wheat grain. It's kind of like giant tall grass. And the actual kernels of the wheat, the fruit, if you will, have to be separated from the wrapper, the husk. And the way you do that is you take a pitchfork and you just whack it, right? 
And so he's basically saying, Satan has asked if he could beat you, Peter, like a pinata, okay? He's just going to whack you. And in that whacking, you're, you're separating the husk from the kernels of wheat. And that's the process, right? So Peter's going to be beat up. And really, he's talking here not just about Peter, but the plural of the you. He's talking about all the disciples. So he's talking to the leader. He's talking to the brave guy. Like, hey, I'm talking to you, Peter. But he's talking to all the disciples. You guys are all going to get beat up. You're all going to get threshed like wheat. And the trash, the husk is going to get separated out, and the good, the good fruit will remain. And so he's like, this is, this is coming. There's going to be a struggle. And so when this threshing comes, be prepared. Know that it's coming. Verse 32. But Jesus says, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus says, I've prayed for you. So failure is coming, but Jesus is promising them. He also promises us in John 17. He goes through this whole thing and even says, I'm now talking about not just my 12 disciples, but all who have ever believed. And he prays that they will be kept by God's grace. He says, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that you will be held together, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So what's the goal? You're going to get it beat up. I'm praying that you don't completely renounce your faith. So you're going to fail. You're going to trip up. You're going to get beat up. You're going to get whacked. Your faith won't fail completely. I'm praying for you. And then when you're done, turn around and strengthen your brothers. Serve them. Help them. Strengthen them, Peter. Verse 33, what's Peter's answer? Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Uh, one of the greatest uh, things I've ever heard about leadership is that leadership is often just being dumber than the other people, right? You're like, ah, oh, there's a big hill. You're with all your friends and you're on bikes. And you're like, I'll go first. Let's go. Come on. That's often what leadership is. And Peter, Peter exhibits this really well. He's like, I'll go. Come on. Let them take me, right? I'll go to prison and to death. Jesus is like, okay, hold on. Verse 34, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So, Peter, you're going you're gonna to fail. You're going to fail in ways that you never imagined. And Jesus has said that to me. Again, rest of the New Testament, here he's talking to just Peter and the 12. But rest of the New Testament, it's clear. He's like, guys, you're going to fail. We're going to fail. We're going to fall on our faces in ways that we never imagined. You're like, I didn't sign up for this. When I started following Jesus, I never imagined it would go like this. And what he's calling you, what he's calling Peter to do, what he's calling the 12 to do, what he's calling me to do is to endure beyond the failure. To know that we have a Jesus who's praying for us, who is holding on to us. As John 10 says, has us in his hand and nothing can snatch us out of his hand. He's saying, I'm, I'm praying for you. I'm holding you. I'm going to make this work. That's the promise we get from Jesus. So we get the promise of our failure, and we get the promise of Jesus' success. So he's saying, endure beyond failure. Keep going. Don't, don't give up. Don't quit. Um, in John chapter 21, we see the actual restoration of Peter. So Peter does deny Jesus. He does feel like a failure. He does kind of give up on the apostle thing and go back to fishing, we find, at the end of John. He's like, I don't know what else to do. I'm going to go fish again, right? Makes sense. 
and they meet Jesus there. And Jesus is like, Peter, do you love me? Care for my baby lambs. Do you love me? Care for my little sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. And so it's a parallel of what we have here, right? He's like, okay, when it's all over, I want you to turn and strengthen your brothers. Encourage others, right? We have this unique opportunity, just like Peter, that when we fail, that has tenderized and softened us in a way where we are uniquely ready to encourage one another. Like, you know what? Turns out the answer's not me after all. It's Jesus. Because I have failed beyond my wildest dreams. But Jesus never fails. And so he says, endure beyond failure. How do we endure beyond failure? We serve, we care for his other sheep. We look out for the lost. We look out for the hungry. We look out for the hurting. We are like, it's okay, Jesus, Jesus got you. Let me, let me help you. I fell too. And we walk with each other through encouragement. I found a lady holding a little baby sheep as a picture of this image that Jesus gave to Peter. Again, Peter's the brave guy that's willing to go over the ramp with his bicycle into something that nobody should have ever done, right? Like he's like, I'll die. I'll go to prison. Come on, I'll do anything. He's that kind of brave, brash, strong man leading the other disciples. And Jesus is like, yeah, but can you, can you care for the little ones? Can you hold the sheep? Can you feed those that need the, the pure milk of the word, as Peter later describes it? I think this had captured his imagination. So what do we do when, when we fail, when we fall? Don't give up your faith. Confess your sin. Confess your weakness to Jesus. It's just standard operating procedure. To be a Christian is to be a confessor. First John 1 says, don't lie about your sin. Confess your sin. And Jesus will he'll sort it out. He'll forgive you. James 5 says you do that in community. Confess to each other. Pray for each other. You need buddies praying for you that you may be healed. And then we encourage one another. We dust ourselves off. We wipe the blood off our face. We keep going. We endure beyond failure. Okay, third point. Prepare to be outsiders. Prepare to be outsiders. Uh, Jesus is going to prep them here. He's like, hey, things are going to get rough. You're going to need a go bag, right? You all know what that means? I think a lot of army guys know what that means. Like preppers, you're getting ready for the zombies to come. You got a, a bag, right, with all your stuff in it. And this is basically what Jesus is walking them through here. He's going to say, like, you're going to need money. You're going to need a backpack. You're going to need a sword. Um, and he's like, get, get ready for things to get nuts here. You're going to be considered one of the out. One of the outlaws, right? You're going to be with the transgressors is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 53. So verses 35 through 38, and he said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? I said, no, nothing. So he's hearkening back to previously in Luke when he sent them out for ministry training. He was like, hey, I want you to go two by two, preach the gospel, heal people. Um, minister to people, but I don't want you to take anything. I just want you to go kind of like ill-equipped. You don't need a bunch of gear. You don't need your go bag. You don't need your stuff. Just go and just throw yourself on other people's mercy. Let me provide for you through a man of peace, town to town, that will just take care of your needs. And he's like, did it work? I'm like, yeah, it worked. It was good. We were well provided for. He's like, okay, this, this time we're entering into is going to be a little different. You're actually entering into something much harder right now, and I want you to pack a bag. So, so look at it again. He was like, so did you lack anything? They answered nothing. Verse 36, he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. If you got money, take the money. If you got a stash buried 
behind your house, go dig it up, put it in the bag. You, you need to get ready. Likewise, a knapsack. Do you have your backpack? Do you have your go bag? Get, get the bag, pack your bag. Get ready for things to get crazy. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. He's like, you're, probably if it's like between the extra jacket and the sword, you're going to need the sword, right? You're going to need the sword. That's going to be more important. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. So they're going to be outside the law, outside the jurisdiction they've been in. They've, they've been popular, right? He's, going to, he's like, everybody's going to turn on you. You're going to be an outsider. For, that, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. Verse 38, and they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. <laughs> and he said to them, it, uh, it's enough. <sighs> I added the, uh, right? Um, they're focused on the swords. I don't, did you notice that? Like Jesus, like, you're going to need money. You're going to need a bag. You might even need a sword. And they're like, swords? Swords? Yeah, we're going to need swords. And they're all excited about the swords, right? Which I, I get it. I mean, I'm not even a soldier, and I get excited about it, right? Like, okay, that's cool. Um, a gun? How many guns? How many guns do we bring, Jesus? And they're getting really excited about it. I, I grabbed a picture here online. This is an original first century Roman sword. Well, I shouldn't say original. This is a copy of an original first century sword. But, you know, one of those like where it's built exactly the way they would build it in the first century. Um, so it could have been anything from a big sword to a small dagger. But he's basically saying bring, bring arms, bring, bring a handgun. That would have been the equivalent, right? Because things are going to get dangerous. What I want you to see, though, is that he's not really focused on that. He's really focused on be prepared to be an outsider. And so let me just do kind of like an excursus on the just use of arms as Christians for just a minute, and then we'll come back to what the big idea is, right? Because what's the big idea? The big idea is be prepared to be an outsider. Be prepared to not rely on money, popularity, uh, academic respectability. Be prepared to go without those things and still represent Jesus. But what do, we, what do we make of having swords? Most of you in this room are actually soldiers. We have a congregation primarily made up of soldiers. And Romans 13 says that God has justly given the power of the sword. For, for today, it, for you, it's like a missile or artillery or a gun, right? But the power of the sword, symbolically, violence for the sake of justice has been conferred to you rightly, Paul says. Governments rightly can appoint police and soldiers to keep wickedness from going crazy by giving violence to certain people that are trained to use it lawfully. And so Christians historically have affirmed that that right is good and proper. Now, it is something that Christians disagree about, right? Because we have this tension of Jesus saying, turn the other cheek, sacrifice yourself for others, just like I did. And then we have Paul, Romans 13, saying, like, no, that's the legitimate use of the sword. And so I believe the, the Reformed Protestant evangelical tradition is pretty helpful where it says, yeah, there's a truth to both sides. There really is the legitimate use of power by soldiers and police, and that's a right and proper jurisdiction on behalf of the government to keep wickedness and evil from going crazy. But if you're operating as a representative of Jesus, you don't use the gun or the artillery to get someone to convert to Christ. And so we would say that's actually been a huge failure in the history of the West, is that often Christian leaders confuse that. We're saying, no, those are separate jurisdictions. The sword we use is the truth of the gospel. That's the sword that we wield, Paul says in Ephesians 6. So is it right and okay to be a policeman or be a soldier? 
Absolutely. We thank you for your service. Don't use that skill or that jurisdiction to convert people to Christ, though, right? The way that people convert, the way that the power of God's people and the power of the gospel spreads is just through the open proclamation. And that works when we're outside of power, when we have no popularity. That works when we have no nation supporting us. That works when nobody likes us. That works when everybody thinks we're stupid. It still works. It's the supernatural power of the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So I encourage you to not throw that out. So there is some common sense stuff here. Like, as Americans, we, we would say we're even, we're even certified for home defense, right? That's like a part of the jurisdiction we're given. And yet we need to have this pull. We all, no matter what uh, amount of swords you carry, <laughs> we all have to have a tension, a tug on our heart of like, God has called me to offer myself as a living sacrifice. So what does that look like in my life? How can I serve others? How can I give myself up for others? How can I lay my arms down uh, to show Jesus to others? So again, the Bible affirms, yeah, there's a right and good governmental use of the power of the sword. And the Bible also affirms, but that's not what the church does. The church doesn't use swords. Church doesn't, as the church, when we're spreading the gospel, use that power. There's absolute uh, prohibition on that. So later on, in this chapter, Luke twenty-two fifty-one, we'll come to it. I don't think next week, but the week after, in Luke twenty-two fifty-one, Peter has the sword that they've just discussed. Do you know the story? When Jesus is turned over to the authorities, Peter pulls out the sword. He swings the sword at one of his enemies to free his Lord Jesus. And so again, this is a beautiful, a beautiful and wrong exercise of the use of the sword, right? Peter swings the sword. He's a fisherman, not a soldier, so he misses the guy, just gets his ear, chops his ear off. Jesus puts the guy's ear back on his head, heals him, which I've, I always loved that as a kid. I thought that was like the coolest story. And Jesus is like, no, put away the sword. He's like, that's not what I, when I told you to pack a, a go bag, that's not what I meant, Peter. He's like, you are to proclaim the word. That's your job now. Right? And so that's just the, that's the confusing line we walk. Jesus is like, oh, you have a handgun? Cool, you might need that someday. But that's not how you're going to preach the gospel. That's not what it's for. And that's the distinction, I think, is being made here. And so the question for us is, are we depending on popularity? Can you only extend the power of Christ when you're popular? No. You can extend it when you're not popular. Can you only extend the power of Christ if you have academic respectability? If people think you're smart and you're keeping up with the science? No, you can still spread the word of God even if people think you're stupid. Do you, do you need money? No, you don't need money to spread the word of God. We don't need any of these marks of power to spread the word of God. Do we enjoy being in power? Do we enjoy not being outsiders when we can have that advantage? Sure. Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment when I'm hungry and when I'm well-fed, when I'm in power and when I'm out of power. What's the secret of contentment? It's Jesus. Jesus enables me to not take power too seriously, and Jesus encourages me to not take being out of power too seriously. So prepare to be outsiders. And Ephesians 6 shows us how to wield the sword of the Spirit. Three steps for spiritual warfare. Three steps to actually use our power as the people of God. The same power that's been confirmed to the disciples. We have the same power as well. In Ephesians chapter 6, it says we have authority over evil in the world. We should pray. 
We should remember our identity in Christ, and we should speak the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Those are the three things we do to fight. If you're a fighter, if you want to swing that sword like Peter, these are the three, the three ways that he tells you to fight. He tells you to pray, remember your identity in Christ, and then to speak the Word, speak the Scriptures, know the truth and share it with others. Okay, we'll wrap up here. Conclusion, squad goals. Squad goals. So Jesus gives his squad goals. Um, on the one hand, this squad has completely fallen apart, and we don't want to mimic them, right? But on the other hand, that should humble and encourage us that just like us, the founders of our faith, they, they kind of fell apart, and Jesus' grace is enough. And so I want to end with the picture again that Jesus gave them in, in Matthew 16, and this was covered in, in Luke chapter 9. He took them to Caesarea Philippi, which was a center of actual devil worship in northern Israel. And the place there was called the Gates of Hell. And that's where he asked Peter, who am I? And Peter was like, you're, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know what? It wasn't flesh that revealed that to you, Peter. <laughs> it wasn't your strength as a leader. It was our Heavenly Father that revealed that truth to you. And on that rock, I'm going to build my church. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. Jesus promises us he's the one that's going to do the building. And he's going to do the building on the days that we succeed and on the days that we fail. But he's the one constant that we can rely on that we will proclaim and that we will look to as our hope. Amen? Amen. Let's pray, and then we'll uh, respond in worship through communion. So let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and that you have given yourself for us in Jesus. Thank you for giving us your perfect life. Thank you for giving us your sacrificial death. Thank you for giving us resurrection power that surges through us as we trust you by faith. That resurrection power enables us um, to trust you when we feel like we're insiders and when we feel like we're outsiders. We thank you. We pray that you'd help us to meet these goals you've given for us by trusting in you and your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.